Hey, do you teach yoga? Have you ever trained to lead yoga classes to be a yoga therapist? Have you ever owned a yoga studio? Maybe even just wondered what it was like for the women and men up there in front of the room on their mats, leading you through endless Surya Namaskars, down dogs, and pranayamas galore? Well, these are their stories and mine. I'm Rebecca Sebastian, a 20-year yoga teacher, 10-year yoga therapist, yoga studio owner, and co-founder of a yoga-focused nonprofit. I've done a lot in the yoga world over the last 20 years, pretty much everything except had a water cooler. You know, a place to share stories, talk about struggles, successes, and find other people who do the same thing that I do. Welcome to Working in Yoga, a podcast and substitute water cooler for yoga folks to connect and build community, to share our unique profession, our challenges, and our journeys with the world. Welcome to season three of Working in Yoga. Woo! Thank you so much for listening in. Thank you to those of you who have been listeners to the podcast for the last two seasons. And I want to welcome everybody who might be finding us now here in season three. So my name is Rebecca Sebastian, and Working in Yoga is my love letter to the world, to the community of yoga professionals. I love to tell our stories, share our experiences, and highlight amazing people doing great work within our industry. This season, season three, I am highlighting three specific groups of humans. First are social change advocates. These are people who are within the yoga space who are either utilizing yoga techniques in order to push through social change. They might be running nonprofit organizations, people who are really in the world of social change. I know some amazing folks in the yoga space, and to be honest, I can't wait for you to meet them. The second group of humans that I want to introduce you to this season are yoga therapists. We don't often tell our nitty-gritty stories as yoga therapy professionals. What does that even mean? Most people don't know, I don't think. Sometimes you'll see people intersecting between yoga therapy and social change. How are we doing that? And so you'll hear a little bit of the stories of yoga therapists this season. And third, as usual, you're going to be hearing some business stories, stories of people who are running real businesses in the yoga industry. What are their experiences? What's 2022 like versus 2020 or 2021? You'll hear those stories as well. You're, of course, going to hear some solo episodes with me and my original content. I have a few things to say. My first one's going to be on grief. <laughs> so stay tuned for all of that. Now, this first episode of season one is a special one. I say this in the, in the podcast, but I will say it again. I don't know how I got in this room. But we have, of course, my friend, Pooja Brani on the podcast. And Pooja brought friends this time. We also have the amazing Melissa Shaw and the fantastic Jacoby Ballard on the podcast. This podcast is jokingly entitled, The People That You Want to Help With Yoga Don't Follow You on Instagram. So we're going to talk about what it means to be of service. How can you really be of service Is as a yoga professional? So stay tuned. This is an amazing conversation. We have an hour's worth of content. So buckle up, wash your dishes, hop in your car and take a drive, and I'll catch you on the other side. 
Welcome everyone to a new episode of Working in Yoga. So this episode is going to be in part of our Puja Chronicles because honestly, whenever I hang out with Puja Barani, she just knows the coolest people. And I don't know how I got in this Zoom meeting today with y'all, but I am so thrilled you're here. So as you all know, I'm Rebecca Sebastian. My pronouns are she, her, hers. I am sitting on unceded land of, it is complicated, but we will say sock fox land for now. And I'm going to introduce you today, of course, to my very good friend, Pooja Varani, but also to Jacoby Ballard and Melissa Shaw. So if you will all introduce yourselves, Jacoby, I'm going to start with you. Hi, everyone. I am living on uh, Shoshone Ute, Paiute, Goshute land, known as Kokarni to the indigenous people, known to colonizers of Salt Lake City. Utah. And uh, I've been teaching yoga for about 23 years and came into yoga through meditation. So meditation has always been part of my practice and the philosophical and uh, teachings have always um, guided me and also came into yoga as a, as an athlete and was uh, very humbled (laughs) by the asana practices. I have taught queer and trans yoga since 2006 um, in recognition that I didn't see myself reflected in many yoga spaces um, and didn't feel welcome or anticipated and often was harmed. And um, out of my love for my people, wanted to create spaces where others didn't have to experience uh, that, that same level of harm. I've also been a social justice educator for a couple of decades. And so my work within yoga has always been informed by um, Black feminism and intersectional politics and disability justice work, a lot of food justice, healing justice work. And now yoga communities are starting to catch up to that. And there's more and more of us. I'm really delighted to be in this conversation with you all. Thank you. Melissa, will you go next and introduce yourself? Absolutely. Thank you for having me. Um, I'm truly just honored to be in this space with all of you. Um, my name is Melissa. My pronouns are she and they. I live on the unceded land of the Quiche and Tongwa Shumash people colonized with Los Angeles um, in California. And uh, primarily, I work as a yoga therapist. So I teach some group classes, but I primar- primarily work uh, one-on-one with people from all over the world, which is really awesome. Thanks to online yoga communities. Um, I Yoga found me at a really young age. Um, I was practicing probably before I knew I was practicing yoga, but my mom started um, having me practice more formally when I was a preteen or so because I was diagnosed with asthma at the age of two. Um, my asthma was pretty severe as a kid and all the fun things that come with that, like allergies and chronic sinus infections and all of those things. So my mom grew up with this practice as well and with Ayurveda. And so she just knew that um, if she kept on teaching me, I probably would resist because that's the parent-child relationship. And so she um, had my sister and I learn with some family friends and we were in middle school. We just go a few days after school. The family friend's house practice with a bunch of adults. There's no like kids yoga games or anything like that. You just did what everyone else was doing. But that's really kind of how I came to the practice. And I met my teacher soon after that. And I think I've just been like really blessed to have been like kind of steeped in this practice for such a long time, but also 
because we're all human beings have opportunities for phases of life where you fall in and out of the practice. You kind of learn, you kind of learn where, like where not only it belongs in your life, but where you belong in that path. So I'm really excited to be doing this work. And the last, I would say last few years, I've um, just developed a little bit more clarity and confidence of what path I really need to be taking right now, what my role is. And that's helped me hone in on not just the work that I'm doing one-on-one, but community-wise and people I'm connecting with and seeing exactly what we're going to be talking about today of what does it really mean to have like hold inclusive spaces and just being really open to constantly learning. Yeah. Thank you, Melissa. And finally, I'm going to have Pooja introduce herself and tell us what we are talking about today, Pooja. Hi, my name is Pooja Varani. Uh, my pronouns are she and her, and I'm on Monahoke land, now known as the Plains, Virginia. If you've been listening to these podcasts, you all know me already. And if you haven't, you should, because they're hella snarky. Um, <laughs> and we kind of try and tear down the yoga industry so that we can rebuild it. Um, so the reason I'm on this is because I'm a pain-free movement specialist and I'm a social justice consultant. And it wasn't until 2020 that I realized that there were queer and trans yoga classes or that there were classes for BIPOC. And part of that was through conversations with folks like Melissa. Melissa was one of the first people I talked to who was like, yeah, you can do this. This is a thing. And then I had a conversation with Jacoby later and was just so inspired by these two. And I'd already started teaching these classes, but you know, there's some challenges that come up in teaching classes for specialized populations or for marginalized groups. So that's where we're going to be addressing. So the topic we have or the title we have right now is the underestimated and minority humans you want to help don't follow you on Instagram and other ways to be of service. So we are going to really be asking our guests to dive into how they've done this. And I'd just like to start by asking the first question, which was, how did you each come to starting classes for BIPOC or starting classes for queer and trans folk. And how about we start with Melissa? Um, You already alluded to your history, but a little bit more about how you started focusing on these particular populations. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. I'll just start off by saying that I feel like nothing I'm doing is like new, you know, like I didn't like, like, just like, None of us, right? Like we, none of us like really came up with yoga, just like I did not come up with the idea of having a BIPOC center space. I've learned from other people that came before me and people I am lucky enough to work with. And honestly, I was really inspired by them. I think that I um, was really holding myself back from having some agency in how I wanted to teach and what my dharma, what my role really was. And part of that not having the agency was really just not seeing myself represented in the spaces that I was in. I'd never had not been to a yoga studio. I practiced since I was a kid. I didn't go to a yoga studio until I was like in graduate school, like living in Manhattan and just had no money, but like had no space and still wanted to practice. And I was like, I'll go to these studios. And that was like my first experience, you know, doing yoga anywhere else, except with like a community center, like family um, or my teachers and going to studios and just having this like really visceral response, but having no words at all to describe it. And not even, and not even thinking that's what the response I was having then. It wasn't until years later, I looked back and I was like, oh, I was just like in shock. Um, And there were some really great things I got of that, those communities, but a lot of it was really just trying to 
figure out, you know, why was my body responding a certain way? And yeah. And I guess like, I guess that kind of stayed with me a long time, you know, like feeling like you, I had to do additional trainings other than what I had already learned, because if I taught the way I had grown up practicing, no one would actually come to those classes and it had to be like palatable or couldn't be like too Indian is really the best way, best way I would put it. And so I think the last few years, one of the pivotal moments for me was meeting Susanna Bakitaki for sure. Um, and she was connected me connected to me through another colleague of mine. I think meeting her for sure was like a huge um, point of change for me to give a lot of words for, give a lot of words and agency and space to things like I already knew in my bones and skills I already had. And I just wasn't really sure how to put it out there. And I was afraid of losing clients. I was afraid of like, oh, if I really go in this direction that I really believe and this feels true to me, the people I'm already working with, they're going to be offended by that somehow, or they're going to feel like left out. Um, meeting her was a big turning point for me. And then when Thajal and Jaisal put out their Yoga is Dead podcast, I was like, okay, this is actually just like my whole life actually just being put on in like a public podcast, right? Well, like so many other South Asian teachers and not even non-South Asian teachers, right? Any with any other marginalized identities, um, like Jacoby was mentioning earlier, like we got so much from that podcast. We were like, yeah, this is everything everyone's been saying, but now it's out there. <laughs> and it's, um, I can now share it with people and being like, look, like this is, this is what I've been talking about. So anyway, the, like there's been a lot of different like magical moments, but I feel like those few things were really what allowed me to kind of shed the whole narrative of if I don't like, if my skin's like not lighter or if I don't look a certain way, or if I don't teach this like choreographed dance class, essentially with like really cool music, I'm not going to, I'm not going to be a successful teacher. And there were really people that I learned from to be able to break that narrative. And I think some like really beautiful stuff came out of it, which was, yeah, having spaces that are BIPOC only. And in some cases, like a South Asian only as well those affinity spaces are so healing and it's like, you don't know until you're in it. You really don't. Um, and you don't know how much you're tailoring what you're saying for the white gaze or sometimes in, in like yoga for the non-South Asian gaze as well. You don't really know how you're censoring what you're doing until you have an opportunity to not do it. And once I felt that I'm like, Oh, then you know, <laughs> this is, this is so, this is so important. So. Rebecca and I aspire to be the next yoga is dead. <laughs> I don't know if we're going to achieve that and that's okay. <laughs> but They are much nicer than we are, but, on, <laughs> but honestly, I mean, like referencing yoga is dead. I, I, I had that experience listening to the yoga is dead podcast. Like it was really a lightning in a bottle kind of moment. They captured everything that those of us who are deconstructing what you can consider the typical or traditional Western yoga industry, they were saying everything we were having those conversations about. I came as a person with an injury to yoga when I was 19. I was born, I had a birth defect. I was born with hip dysplasia. So I was in chronic pain by 19 years old. And that's how I came. So then you look at all the Instagram things with people like on the beach with their foot in somewhere that seems like really uncomfortable and kind of awkward, like wearing like a tiny little something. It was like, that's never going to be me. And that's also not why I was here. And, and Melissa, you said something that I really want to highlight is the fact that you had to 
sort you you were feeling like you had to couch your words, you had to change your languaging for the white gaze, for the gaze of the humans who were in the room. And I mean, I also have taught like that in a community where it's primarily Ashtanga in my community. And I'm here as a yoga therapist, like, you know, you guys can lay down. <laughs> like, and and that's such an important thing to highlight this idea that we are not bringing our whole ass selves to the table as teachers, because we're trying to change our language for those in the room. Jacoby, have you ever had that experience? I mean, yes. And I got fired for it. (laughs) I've been fired from, I think it's four or five studios now, some in cities, some in small towns. And I think part of it is, I mean, a lot, there's different things. It's homophobia. There's resistance to like social justice. I was, I was like kind of not willing to, to change what I was saying or what I was speaking about or how I was teaching. And so that's the result, right? They're like, Oh, you're not wanted here then. And so, you know, I was, I was fired from a yogic institution that's right across the street from the New York city LGBT center. And then I like shortly after I started teaching queer and trans yoga at the LGBT center, <laughs> because I was like, that's where that's where I'm going to find my people. And then, and then after that also um, forming third root community health center in, in Brooklyn, um, trying to aspire to a space where there's collective ownership. And so no one person gets to decide who's hired or fired or what the cultural norms are. are. We're forming that together as a really diverse ownership body and we're accountable to one another and we're accountable to one another's communities, right? So because Julia Bennett was was there, I was accountable to older black lesbians in Brooklyn, right? And because Jelena Fontaine was there, we were all accountable to um, Cubans uh, uh, living in, in Brooklyn and you know the legacies of, of healing in, in both and all communities as well. Yeah, it, so I would say part of like wanting to form queer and trans yoga was was wanting a space where queer folks could be our full selves and um, and not. I, th- I think I've experienced that more as a student, like trying to fit into the like yoga box, going into studio spaces, and like wanting to like I don't know like perform my yoga. And I also know that like that's not where the transformation comes right the transformation comes through the teachings and and the application of the teachings in our lives and through relationship right and so being in community part of part of queer and trans yoga is like working out the practice with one another and refining our practice together so that then it's not an individual pursuit it's a collective um, responsibility really and I guess another part of it, of offering queer and trans yoga, was just seeing all of the hurt in queer communities and wanting to do something about it and provide um, some tools and provide a space uh, where there weren't, where, where there was aspiration of harm reduction, I don't, you know, or a brave space. I don't think it could ever be harm free um, because we're all humans, but um a place where, you know, if someone got harassed on the train, they could come to yoga and like talk about their whole experience and we could form the whole class around um, 
discharge and around heartbreak and, you know, whatever's in the room rather than some preconceived notion of like, we're doing handstands today and then we're, we're going to go towards the splits or, you know, whatever it is. Part of how I teach Grand Trans Yoga virtually and in person is to do check-ins often around a theme so that then we're bringing in the teaching, we're demonstrating to one another how we, how the teachings impact our lives, sharing that, inspiring one another with that and, and allowing ourselves to be accountable to the deeper practices with one another through that sharing. But then also to be responsive to who and what is in the room. And sometimes, you know, there's like amazing joy to to move with and and celebrate with and, you know, add add some dance and some flair to the practice. And sometimes it's all about like laying down on the earth because like we need grounding and we need settling. And then I think also teaching Korean trans yoga, kind of similar to Melissa, then I could I, I like refined my style of teaching so that then I could bring that to other spaces that I taught in too and be unapologetically queer, which sometimes costs jobs, um, but also, you know, really demonstrated who who are the people that I want to be working for, who are the people that I want to be working with, what are the institutions that I want to be um, participating in and a representative of, and what are the institutions that are totally bankrupt as the as yoga is dead demonstrated and you know a lot of us doing this work accessible yoga Susanna Barkataki um, the Black Yoga Teachers Association right illuminates all of all of that of what are all the problems and um, and then not just making it about me as well um, as a side note like when I'm invited to teach at conferences. Um, or su- online summits or whatever. My first question is always like, who else is teaching? And are you paying every th- everyone the same thing? Are the, is the offer the, the same? And, and if it's, you know, if BIPOC folks and queer folks and disabled folks are in the minority of who's teaching, then how are you countering that emotional label, labor with the payment that you're offering us or other benefits, whether it's a network or whatever? Well, I know I have you personally to thank for we were both on a virtual conference together. I'm not going to name the one. And I know you know exactly what you Yes. But I got an email that the the amount we were getting paid was actually increased because I heard that you were pushing for that. And that just benefited me. It benefited all the other folks who were a bunch of um queer BIPOC folks from across the spectrum. So I very much appreciated that. What kept on coming up to me was that point you ended with, actually, that it's not about me and your emphasis on community and accountability, Um, because I think one of the problems with Instagram is Instagram is a platform which lends itself to me, 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 and lives on Instagram is look at me, look at me, do this thing. I know when I teach queer yoga classes, I always encourage folks, if it's on Zoom or some other sort of online platform to turn on their gallery because the opportunity to have other queer folks in the room is not something I grew up having. And it's such a special thing for me that I want other people to see how we practice in such different bodies and how everything looks different. And this is also our community. And I think just Instagram and social media discourages that in a way. Um, So I'm curious, how are ways that you promote these offerings? How are ways that you reach the community? 
possibly through social media, right? How you use social media through for good and how are other ways to do it? Would either of you like to start that one? It's a great question because I think I'm always still figuring it out um, and always trying to like, I wrote down something Jacoby said, right? Of being responsive to who and what is in the room. So just being open to the fact that like how you might care about these opportunities and classes like might have to also shift over time depending on depending on the needs, you know? Um, but I definitely use social media to promote some things, but I will say like over the last couple of years, I've created like a much stricter boundary with it. And with that sometimes comes like less people coming into the space or not as much visibility, but I've started to like be a little bit okay with that trade-off. So I'm like, if I try to build more of an offline community, whether it's through like newsletters or saying yes to like teaching and teacher training, where like offering modules to teach teacher training to like prioritize like BIPOC cohorts or like scholarships for like UT BIPOC, then I also know that I'm in good company as well. You know, that um, if something resonates with some of the people I'm teaching there, like they might also continue their learning, whether it's through MySpace or through Puja or through somewhere else, right, that I can refer them to. Um, so I've been putting a little bit more attention on directing my energy more into those spaces and also more... Um, when I say offline, I really just mean like off of social media, not necessarily in real life. <laughs> One other thing that's coming to mind too is, and this might not necessarily answer your question, Buja, of like how do you necessarily promote or like market these classes, but I just always think of the um, this idea of like being willing to give up the seat of power. And that's the when we were talking before we started, you know, recording this podcast, that's like the first thing that comes in coming up when um, you and Rebecca, Pooja and Rebecca were both chatting about, you know, what is the purpose of this podcast, you know, and what this conversation. And sometimes, um, even with my own offerings, you know, even if they're BIPOC centered or not, sometimes it is like, you know, knowing when to give up that seat of power, you know, um, with the, I'm doing a retreat this fall and it is open to everyone, but I wanted to have at least a few spots where they were like half off scholarships specifically for UT BIPOC. And I had this like dream that like companies and people, you know, with the financial ability would all come and like donate to, to that fund. Right. And as that's starting to come into fruition, I'm starting to think about if I'm wanting to create space more for QT BIPOC for LGBTQIA, right. And going to create more space for that. How might I also think about me being able to do that, but not something that's my offering necessarily, I guess, you know, if some, if there is somebody who um, South Asian trans person offering a yoga retreat, can I actually direct people to their retreat instead saying like, Hey, like if you're looking for a space, you know, that is primarily like queer and trans, like, can I actually just say like, you know, this person is doing this really great thing. Um, you know, if their teaching resonates with you, I think that that would be great. And just being, I think just being more and more willing to do that. And that's not necessarily just me. Right. I think, about some like media stuff that I've been able to be a part of this last year. And I'm not going to like point out any specific one, but um, there was one in particular where there was all this effort to highlight so many people uh, with different marginalized identities. And there was so much more that could have been done better or correctly so much more. And I remember talking to actually a client of mine about it. And they said like, People just need to be willing to just get out of the way, like give give the control to like the black community, give the control to like the queer community, the South Asian community, the Asian community, just give it up, just give it up. <laughs> and then you don't know what's going to happen when you do that. Right. And 
yes, I have some marginalized identities, but I also definitely have a lot of privilege, privilege as well. So I'm always trying to like balance those and think about that of how do I, when it is, when is it actually my role to stand in there and create that space? And when is it actually my role to maybe like redistribute or like, re, or give even, even give people the opportunity to have a different, to have a different option instead of trying to take all those opportunities from myself or all those resources. And I think the more white people who are willing to do that, I think the more we actually have a chance at this industry actually changing or more with anyone with identities uh, aligned to dominant culture, you know, who are willing to just say, yeah, actually, like I have more, I have more power and influence and I could actually like shift the way things are happening rather than having to be the one who has to have, has to do that festival or that conference. And it has to be me. Right. And we see that a lot with yoga festivals in particular and retreat centers. They're usually run by white people and oftentimes like white, cis, um, straight people as well. And they're wanting to figure out how to bring more BIPOC people in the door, bring more queer and trans people in the door. Great. Fine. Right. But I'm always thinking of that question is like, why do you have to be the one to do it? Like just, go learn, you know, go learn and bring someone, bring someone else in or redirect it. Maybe there are, maybe there are options and opportunities for people with different marginalized identities. They're already doing this stuff, but like no one will ever know because they're not the ones who are going to be on the cover of the magazine. So my diatribe. (laughs) Yeah. So I will own all of my privilege here as the (laughs) cishet white host of this podcast But here's what I want to offer to all the white folks listening. I have an analogy for you that I hope is going to amplify what Melissa just said. And it's this. Imagine that all of our resources are on the other side of a chain link fence. And there's 10 white guys with a bunch of buckets and pretty much literally 99% of all the resources on the planet. And the people at the front side of the chain link fence are white guys And they're the ones who get the spoons of the resources first. And behind those white guys are the white ladies, the straight white ladies, and they're getting the resources second and so on and so forth. So then we have, you know, BIPOC men, we have, you know, queer and BIPOC men, we have women, so on and so forth. But here's the thing. When you get back far enough from the fence, you're going to talk to all the queer and BIPOC folks who are like, hey, the fence is only eight feet tall. And if we stand on each other's shoulders, we can get over it but the white folks in the front can't see how tall the fence is because we're so damn close. So when Melissa is saying turn around and take leadership from queer and BIPOC communities, they're the folks saying the fence isn't that tall. We just have to work together. All the resources are literally on the other side for us to take. It's only a chain link fence. We can climb. So the more queer folks that you can highlight in your communities, the more BIPOC folks you can highlight in your communities, like literally go do it. It's it like, go, go do it right now. Instagram will put your picture first because you are a white lady. Always. That is how the algorithm works. So go lift up somebody else. The end. That's my rant. Like no snaps necessary, but I just like, for me, that's always been the analogy, like turn around. Leadership is behind us because they can see the full picture that we don't get to see because we're too close to the fence. So I'm going to slide this back to Jacoby and ask Jacoby, how do you promote your offerings? The end, white lady's going to have a seat. <laughs> well, I want to say just about that, the, the, the fence and the people in the back and the people in the front is that there's so much wisdom of 
from that experience of like having to cultivate resilience just to survive, right? And as stated in the Combahee River Collective statement that, you know, when, when Black women are free, everyone else will be freed in the process because our liberation necessitates the, the, the liberation of all, all beings. So, it, you know, our liberation is bound and, and it behooves, all, we, we all benefit um, from recognizing that and, and, and redistributing resources. You know, I just got on Instagram like a year ago. <laughs> I resisted it for so long. I have a, I have a partner who's not on any social media um, because of fear of, or just the analysis of surveillance and um, the superficiality that can be present in it. And, you know, I've also found some real relationships like Pooja, I met you on, on social media. Right. Um, and it's like one of my practices to um, when I see other people that are doing fabulous work to just like reach out to them and be like, Hey, we should know each other. You're doing great things. I'm doing some things. Let's, let's work together and lift each other up because at the, you know, communities that are consistently targeted, that's what we do. That's how we survive is um, by joining together. So before joining Instagram, I would, um, you know, just like hand out flyers, post, post my flyers at like community spaces that include like laundromats or, you know, like, like being really creative about like where, where I put visibility and, and trying to put it in places that like wouldn't expect to see a yoga flyer. Um, I also always carry around a clipboard with a piece of paper on it to, for folks to add their name to my, my newsletter. And then I find, you know, word of mouth is like the most effective marketing and it comes, people will share my name or my work when I'm doing good work, you know, and we, we keep alive those who are providing space and, and essential tools to us. So I think that also keeps me accountable to, to doing good work um, by like not relying like I, I, on my Instagram, I don't think I have a single photo of like a arm balance or a handstand or whatever. Right. And kind of like, I refuse to, to do that there. I, you know, I know that there is value of seeing just the embodied representation of folks from different communities, like Jessamine Stanley, like that's how she grew her notoriety, right. And having being a fat black queer woman, like, that invited so many people into practice. That's not not important. But I also know as a white person, as someone that passes as a white man sometimes, that like that's not that's not mine to do. <laughs> white people have already done that enough. <laughs> um, and then and then yeah, I think, you know, being willing to refer, as Melissa was saying, is is an act of interdependence and also is creating good karma right because that that means that it, whatever i put out is going to come back to me and and so if i am um, sharing and not needing to hoard it all and being like yes i'll be the one to teach the homeless people and i'll be the one to teach to folks in recovery and i'll be the one to teach to <laughs> the whatever neglected community targeted community then those people are are better served by by someone with their own experience but it also means that I'm in relationship to someone who's serving that community, right? And and that's what solidarity is um, all about. It kind of leans us towards the, the question of, of being in service, right? 
um, that it's about, it's about working together and like having privilege is not a bad thing, but if I can leverage it towards, you know, everyone having the rights that, that I have, not that I can do that by myself. We all have to do that together. Um, that's part of like what referrals are about. So, you know, when, when a BIPOC queer person comes to my class, I always make sure that like they know the other BIPOC queer teachers that are teaching online that can go to, they might not be here at Salt Lake City, but they're like around the country and available and can definitely provide something that I can't provide. Um, and in doing that, right, I build that person's trust of like, oh, I'm actually looking out for their deeper well-being. That's not about me. It's really, it's about them. I just love this, how you live the yoga by just putting yourself second. You know, one of the things I remember, and I'm going to misquote you on this, but I read somewhere that you said that you always teach to the most beginner or the most, the neediest student in the room. And that's something I always think about now when I have a group, like, how do I make this the most basic or the most accessible? Because I know that other students, you know, if they can do something more advanced, they're going to do something more advanced. But how do I make sure that I take care of that person? Because they're the ones who need me the most that day. I want to shift gears a little bit. And I wanted to talk a bit about the moolah because Rebecca and I love talking about money (laughs) and how it has to do with yoga. So Melissa, you and I have had this conversation a little bit, but I'm really curious about how you serve particular communities and still make sure that you get paid and that you're valued financially as a yoga teacher or as a yoga therapist? It's the age-old question, Pooja. (laughs) Always figuring it out. Something I'm leaning into more is this idea of like shared responsibility with like, finances. So the retreat, I guess, is like one way that I'm actually starting to put that into practice of, I really want to have a certain number of spots where people who um, identify as QT BIPOC want to come, finances might be holding them back. And this was a a practice for me to say like, okay, I want to have, I want to create that space. um, And I want to stay true to that. And I also want to make sure that I can get paid, the retreat center can get paid. And my friend will be cooking a retreat that I can pay them like really well. Um, how can I do all those things? And so that's when I started to put this into practice by starting out just reaching out to friends and family that um, I know want to support these communities, but just might not know how, or they don't know necessarily where to start. And so giving people who have a lot more power and privilege um, in our dominant culture, the opportunity to like just redirect funds. That's been one way I've just started, been starting to put that into practice. And it's been really great. People are like, they want to support and they just might not know how, or um, they might be in their own bubbles with their, with their privilege and power, right? Where they're not necessarily interacting with other communities. This is one way. And then with my clients, I most of the time offer sliding scale. And that has also been a practice for me because it also means that I need to be able to re- understand that some people may not know what that means, especially people who, um, have more financial privilege. They may not really understand the concept of sliding scale or have not, you know, been in a situation where they've utilized services that are sliding scale. And um, that is one way I've been trying to make these practices more access- accessible to people who are different financial positions and identities 
while also making room for, okay, if you can, like it's actually a responsibility to pay whatever the standard price is if you're able to. And therefore that leaves room for anybody who may not be able to, for whatever reason in this particular phase of life or systemic oppression, it leaves room for everyone else to be able to access these services and not feel like bad about, I'm not paying my yoga therapist enough. This doesn't feel like an even exchange. And there can be a lot of stuff that comes with that, right? But when I feel like when everybody's doing their part and everyone's doing their role, it allows so much more room for people to come into, for people who really need to be there to come in, come into the door. But I will say this is like a work in progress for me because um, I've had several different people I look up to be like, you got to increase your prices or sliding scale might have to be for like marginalized communities, but maybe not for everyone. Right. And I, I know that I'm internally struggling with that, but that's also my relationship to money too, of if I increase my prices, like even the people who can afford it, like they might not value it at that price. And so anyway, there's a lot of like internal work I need to do around that, but these are a couple of ways I've been trying to put that into practice um, and really leaning into really leaning into like creating relationship with companies that do have the ability to support and giving them like a clear pathway, a clear pathway to do that so that my work is valued. I can like sustain myself and I don't have to compromise my, my ability to like support these communities as well. Melissa, can you also talk a little bit about what you consider to be of service? So we we mentioned the word service a, a whole lot on this podcast in our yoga community. Will you define a little bit of the terminology for us so that our audience knows what we're talking about? Yeah, I think that's that's a good question. I think so in um in yoga, well, not just in yoga, but like in South Asian culture, rather in Indian culture, we call service. Service means seva. And we that gets translated a lot in the West as like volunteering, which is not really the same thing, right? And Luigi and I have talked about this, how like yoga studios will be like, oh, you can get like a, you know, you can get a membership to the studio and that's like your Seva membership or your Karma membership. And then you do a bunch of stuff for the studio. But I think it comes from really understanding like what your role is in any given situation. Um, and there's so, I mean, for my opinion, there's so much more to free labor. Yes. There's so much more to that um, we think about Seva to our community. Um, like Jacoby was saying, you know, to understanding like who's in front of you, you know, how can we be in service to that person or how can we be in service to that community or group? But to even move further back from that, I think when I think of Seva or think of service, I think of like, what is actually my role? Um, and it goes back to the, if this is not my role, how do I make sure that I'm in communication with other people that I might need to direct like those, that person to, right? That this is not really my role, but it might be Jacoby's role or it might be Pooja's role. Um, and I do this with clients too. Some clients come my way and they share, we have a chat and we talk about these are some stuff that's going on for them. There's some of their identities. Um, this is what they're working with. And we might come to the conclusion of, I think I could really support you, but I actually think this person is like a much better fit for multiple reasons, right? But it's just like a feeling of, it's actually not my role to be supporting this person. It might be somebody else's and directing them. And they have, they might have this like really profound experience with them. They might not have been able to actually have, um, have with me. So I think about dharma a lot. And I think in order to understand that, in order to understand what your role is, any given situation, you have to do the other things like manage your state, 
like do your practice, do your personal practice, um, do your own internal work, understanding the communities um, that you're serving, what communities are you a part of? And then seeing like the next, what is like the next right action for me, for my role? Um, and if it's not, why am I inserting myself there? Why do I feel like it has to be me to do that? Right. Um, is it really because it's coming from like that, that deeper place of like that, that true inner knowing, or is it coming from wanting to like accumulate more power or more visibility or more likes on Instagram or more money, like whatever it is. And not to say making money is a bad thing and visibility is also great. But I guess what I'm saying, like, if you know the motivation behind your action and if you're connected to that, that will also lead to all the other things of how do I know that I'm actually in service? How do I know like this is my seva? to do. So I'm always just trying to stay connected to that. I mean, I definitely mess up, but I'm always trying to remember that. Um, and it, sometimes it actually helps me not take as much on my plate. So I'm like, oh, that's actually not mine to do. Instead of saying yes, saying yes to a lot of things is great, but saying yes to everything, but it's not always your place to do and it's not your role. Sometimes the yes is like, oh, that's super cool. And I'm actually going to send you over to this person. So I, I think they would actually be a better fit. So I, I think it still comes back to like, are you willing to give up your seat of power? And if you're not, what needs to be explored about that? You know, like, why not? I think that's it. Though. Thank you so much for sharing. That was very powerful between the giving up the seat of power and also the financial advice, <laughs> which I know a lot of yoga teachers are looking for. I mean, I have a program, a five-day program at Omega in the fall and this was the first conversation. Yes, I'm very excited. It's like a full week program. But we had a conversation because it's a larger institute for wellness and health. So I said, I really want to make this accessible. What can you offer in the way of scholarships? So we talked about the various options and they have a scholarship fund. And they said, okay, we can get you at least five scholarships. I said, fantastic. Then we talked about parts where I might have to waive my fee and they would have to waive their fee. And then parts where it was just fully funded and I'd get what I received. So we came up with a variety of options and I was like, okay, maybe my seva is giving up my fee for X number of people, but then also partnering with someone who's going to make sure I'm paid in the other situations and still able to do this. Right. And this program is not just a BIPOC program. It's not just a queer and trans program, but I know a lot of times I want to reach those groups and I have trouble with one-on-ones, even when it's sliding scale. So being able to do this in a setting where it could be entirely covered is like, well, I have the partner. Let's make this happen. You know, let's make sure that people are, this is accessible to folks. So I don't want to take up too much of your time. I know I could sit here all day listening to you, <laughs> but I know you're busy folk who have things to do. So we always like to end every episode with a takeaway for the audience, right? A wrap up or a takeaway. And we'd love to hear just your parting words of wisdom for the folks listening. And why don't we start with Jacoby? I mean, I think what, what Melissa shared about, about purpose is really important. When I was working with um, off the mat into the world, one of the exercises we did was, was coming up with a purpose statement. And when I came up with mine, it's something that I like say out loud to myself um, and to my ancestors after I, after I practice, which is, I use my uh, strength, courage, commitment, and kindness by teaching yoga through parenting, through social justice work in order to create a world where 
human differences are valued and celebrated, where all forms of healing are honored and accessible, where our human systems mimic the ways and rhythms of the earth, and where we foster and um, celebrate nourish spirits. And when I say that out loud to myself, it just like reminds me like what I'm doing every day and what I'm not doing <laughs> every day and, and what I'm up for and what I'm not. And um, the more that I've lived into that, it's um, allowed me to say no more often. And when I say no, it means that my yes is truly a yes. And then similar when I'm working with colleagues, you know, when they, when when they have the courage to say no to me, whether it's like, will you lift up my book or whatever it is, whatever the request is, when they say no, I know that it's not always going to be a yes, right? And so that their yes is meaningful. So getting getting clear, I guess, about, about your yes and your no and your, your purpose statement, really important to teaching yoga in this capitalist, white supremacist, colonized world. Melissa, how about you? Um, I love that so much. Sylvia might be emailing you and hiring you to just sit with me and write a purpose statement, if that's okay. I think that's just so good. Like trying to, I'm trying to think of like, is there anything I would say that's different? Um, but I, I think for me, a lot of a lot of what Jacoby said like really rings true. Like at the end of the day, like getting really clear on what your values are and reminding yourself that every, every day or as often as you can, right. So you can clear out, clear out like the clutter, right. Of like what you don't really need to say yes to versus um, what really feels true. And I think for me, like that, that take, the takeaway is really um, like having a practice. That's like, I just think it's, I, I mean, I know it's not cliche, but I really think it's the most important thing it's more important than like any idea or like work I'm going to come up with because it's all coming from that place, you know? Um, and not to say like, I'm doing my practice. I'm like, Oh, I think I should teach like this or that. It's more that over time, if the practice is really like adapted for you and your body and your needs in this moment in time, but also like where you want to be in like three months or six months or a year, if it really is like, and you're consistently staying connected to that, just as often as feels realistic to you, like so much insight will come from that. If like, we're, if we're ready to listen to it, right. Like that insight will come. And then I think of decisions I'm going to make or what I say yes to and what I say no to. If I'm connected to my practice, then I'm going to be connected to that place of inner knowing of, yeah, when I said yes to that, it was actually from a place of scarcity. Like I needed, um, I wanted more visibility or I wanted, um, you know, more money. And both of those things can also come from my inner knowing too, right? The, it doesn't mean that just because we want visibility for our work, that's a scarcity mindset, but it's more, there's a different motivation there. So yeah, I would think that if for like any yoga professionals listening, if you don't already have a personal practice, like you're connected to, I would just like highly encourage you to figure out like what that can look like for you, whether that means like working with someone, a mentor or a teacher or yoga therapist or whatever, whoever they are one-on-one or tuning into, you know, maybe like what you need for yourself every day, whatever that is, I would just highly, highly encourage you to either come back to it or find a way, find a way to incorporate that in. I always think of this example. Um, one of my colleagues um, that I did my yoga therapy training with and 
she's probably so sick of me mentioning this example, but um, she shared in our cohort like a few years ago that her mentor had her change her practice to just sitting outside and listening to the birds for some length of time. I don't remember what it was. And um, I think she was like previously a runner and um, her mentor was like, we're just going to change it to this. That's it. There's no asana, you know, there's no stretching, she's doing some breathing, you're just listening to the birds. She just had her do that for some length of time. I don't remember exactly how long it was, but she shared it in the training. Like everyone was crying, including me, because like, she's like, it changed my whole life. It changed everything. And I would never have thought to make a practice just about listening to the birds when I think of a yoga practice. So we're thinking about when we're making our classes like accessible or inclusive, like I think we really have to pay attention to what does being inclusive actually mean? It might mean that, you know, I'm not the one who's actually teaching it, you know, or it might mean that accessible isn't just I'm making it free or it's not just I'm giving some modifications. It might mean, no, the class has to actually just be in a chair or there needs to be like closed captioning or there needs to be ASL, like whatever that is, right? Like it's really like looking at who's in front of you. Um, so yeah, I think having a connecting to your practice, like most important thing for sure. Pooja? I didn't think you'd ask me my takeaways. <laughs> ah, there's so much here that's been said. I mean, uh... For me, let me start with the business side because I like starting with the business side, which is looking for those organizations that can help support or looking for those allies that can help support our work as yoga teachers, because that's often the struggle of yoga teachers, right? Paying the bills and wanting to do this great work. So in my studio, it's, I get all the rich white women to fund spots in queer yoga classes or queer yoga workshops, and they are happy to do it. Oftentimes they say, if nobody signs up, you take this money, you know, you're a queer BIPOC person, so you do it, right? But it allows me to do that. So from a financial side, finding those partners, right? Whether it's a small, whether it's the small fish or like a big organization, you can do that. And then from the more like the content of the teaching and what we're doing, just meeting the needs of your students. I know Jacoby has already said this, um, but I do think that's so important. I've always, I came from a pretty athletic background and recently I've loved chair yoga. Chair yoga is like my jam now because I realized that a lot of the pain-free movement stuff I did was still being taught in a very athletic way and that I could utilize chairs so that people could do this in the office or people who couldn't easily transition from sitting to the floor, or from the floor to standing would have other ways of accessing this. So it's been a fantastic learning experience for me, but just by focusing on the needs of my students, I find that it actually makes more of a difference, right? It makes the practice more relatable. It makes the practice more actionable. And I truly believe it helps with that sense of belonging, that sense of this could be my practice too. This could be something I could belong to. I don't have to do this thing I see on Instagram. I can do this. And like Melissa said, maybe just sitting outside and breathing, watching the birds is my practice, or maybe just sitting on the chair and doing this stretch is my practice. 
So ultimately coming back to the needs of your students, whether they're queer, whether they're trans, whether they're BIPOC or whether they're another group, maybe they're folks who have disabilities, right? So whichever that group is coming back to, what does this person need right now? So I'm gonna leave you all with some action steps and these are really fun action steps. So buckle up and pick up a pen and a piece of paper. The first thing I need you to do is write down three websites that I want you to go check out immediately. The first is jacobyballard.net. And you can check out Jacoby's book, A Queer Dharma, from that website. And I bet it is available absolutely everywhere books are sold. <laughs> and the second website is findyourbreath.net with Melissa Shaw. And go check out Melissa's work if you are a yoga professional who is looking for a guide. She has all sorts of resources on her website and you can reach out and you can talk to her about helping you up-level your yoga practice. And finally, please, please, once again, go Venmo my very dear friend, pujavarani.com, the price of a coffee, because she has done so much amazing work here and I want you to check out all of their websites. Thank you so much to everybody who is listening today and thank you so much, Jacoby, Melissa, and Pooja. It is my true honor to hold space for these conversations with so much gratitude. Thank you. Oh my gosh, thank you so much for coming on the podcast, Jacoby, Melissa, Pooja. Let me tell you a little bit about the work that they are doing right now. Again, I want to direct you to jacobyballard.net. Jacoby is teaching yoga classes literally almost every day of the week. So you can slide in and see his schedule and pop in a class. Make sure that you grab his book, Queer Dharma, um, from wherever books are sold. And shout him out on Facebook or Instagram, wherever you see this. Tag Jacoby if you really loved what Jacoby had to say. Secondly, make sure you check out Melissa Shaw's work. Wasn't she fantastic? Her website is findyourbreath.net. And her online library on there is like, mwah, chef's kiss. I know you can't see me making the gesture, but I totally am. So make sure you check out Melissa's online library and shout her out on Instagram, Facebook, TikTok, wherever you are, show her some love. And finally, as always, my friend, Pujavarani.com. Thank you so much for listening and I'll see you next time.